Uh, so Isaiah, open up to Isaiah if you're not there yet. Um, obviously these books, especially Isaiah and Jeremiah, there's more in these than we could cover, even if we devoted multiple hours. It's just not, they're so long. So I think the thing that's most helpful when we go through, especially the major prophets, these larger ones, um, is to give like the historical context, some outline framework, so that when you get into these books yourself, you can piece together where the prophecies fall and what they're about. We're not going to be able to go through every single thing that the prophet says and interpret its meaning, you know, but hopefully we can give you framework so that when you read it, it makes some sense. So you can kind of piece it together. Because that's the hardest thing about this, about the prophets, I think, is when you read them, we're like, what is he talking about? And he was talking about this, and then next chapter, it's something totally different, and this is like a story, and then this is like a poem. What is happening? So we're going to try to piece that together and make sense of it so that you understand. Um, one little, This is a tiny little thing, but I think it would be helpful to you. We may have talked about this before in here. I don't remember. But why are they called major and minor prophets? You know about this? What, first of all, let's start with this. New question. What are the major prophets? Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. Yeah. Um, so then what are the minor prophets? Everybody else. Okay. Well, that's... <laughs> uh, it's... Dan, starting with Daniel, who can finish the run. Daniel? Daniel, Hosea, Good. So there's 13 of those, 13 minor prophets. There's three major prophets, 13 minor prophets. Why are they called major and minor? You know? They're more about the major ones. Uh, you kind of close. What? No. <laughs> Musician? No. It's, be, it's just because of size. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are long. They're large. So they're called major prophets because there's a lot of content. So Rosie, you're kind of on the right path. The minor prophets are all shorter. So it's not like minor less important. It's not minor in tone. It's just size. So that was helpful for me when I realized that. Like, oh, they're not, it's not making any other statement except about size. So that's helpful. Um, so Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel are the major prophets. We're going to look at Isaiah uh, and Jeremiah, hopefully, today. So um, the author of Isaiah is Isaiah, good guess. Um, Isaiah lived in Jerusalem, so he prophesies in that. Which, which, uh, king, which of the two kingdoms was Jerusalem the capital of? Do you remember? The southern kingdom, which was also called Judah. Judah. Yeah, so Isaiah is a prophet in Judah. But he's a prophet in Judah during the time that the northern kingdom falls to Assyria. So Isaiah gets confused in my mind a little bit. So he prophesies in the southern kingdom about the southern kingdom, but sometimes about issues that are facing and affecting the northern kingdom more. Does that make sense? So sometimes when I read Isaiah or think about the timeline, I'm like, wait, what is he talking about? It's because he's in the southern kingdom while major historical things are happening in the northern kingdom. So he kind of deals with both in the context of the south. Does that, does that make sense? Again, I think with the prophets, the most helpful thing is like get your, get your kind of mind planted in history and rooted there, and then it'll click. So that's what Isaiah does. Lives in Jerusalem, ministers of that kingdom. So when it happened, somewhere around 740 to 681 B.C. is kind of Isaiah's life um, period. So 740 to 681 are those dates. Um, and that's obviously kind of a ballpark figure. Um, but Isaiah was somewhere around that, that time period. Um, so we talked about this. Your next blank, he's in Judah. That's when he is, in Judah, during the reigns of Uzziah. 
Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, um, which is what it says in Isaiah 1.1. So Isaiah 1.1 just says, The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amoz, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. I'm going to put this on your sheet there. Uzziah sometimes is called Azariah, but it's the same guy. So if you look like in, I think in 2 Kings, he's called Azariah. So that, you, that confused me. It was like, wait, who is that guy? It's just they use the names interchangeably. So that was helpful for me. Um, where might you have heard the name Uzziah before? Why is that a significant king if you're thinking Isaiah? Can you think of it? Land of Uz? Nope. I just read it. You might have. Uh, I don't, maybe, but I don't know. That's not what I'm looking for. It's in probably the most fame, one of the most famous Isaiah stories. Oh, Isaiah 6? Yes. Yeah. So Isaiah 6, which we'll look at later, begins with, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on his throne, and that's like Isaiah's call. So that's where usually, if you know Uzziah or think of Uzziah, that's where you've heard of him. Otherwise, there's not much you would have heard of. He was a pretty good king in Judah. Um, which is why that's so significant. For one, Isaiah 6 is giving you a time marker, but for another it's saying, we had a good king, he died, what are we going to do next? Because if you remember from when we looked at Kings and Chronicles, all the king transitions were pretty iffy. You never knew, right? Like it was very hit or miss if they were good. So you're coming off a good king and about to transition, it's like, oh shoot, what are we going to do? And in that context is when Isaiah has a vision from God and gets his commission to ministry, which is helpful context. Okay, questions, thoughts so far? We're doing okay? Helpful? Okay. Um, you can see just that little timeline there. It's obviously very broad, very vague, but I just think it's helpful sometimes to see some dates laid out of um, some significant things. So we think Isaiah's call is, is 740 because that's when Uzziah's reign ends. Um, Israel in the north falls in 722, right? To which nation? Assyria, yeah. And then the reign of Hezekiah begins. The reason that's significant, which we'll get to later, is um, Hezekiah kind of comes right at the tail end of... He's not the king during the fall of Jerusalem later, but he's kind of the last king when things are going really, really well. There's, a, there's another couple that come, but Hezekiah... We'll look at the story in Isaiah, but Hezekiah is kind of the turning point of like, oh, this is about to get bad. Like they had a, the southern kingdom had a chance to make things right after the northern kingdom fell, and they kind of blew it after Hezekiah, so or during Hezekiah. Okay, so let's kind of outline Isaiah to give you some some big picture stuff. So Isaiah chapters one through thirty nine, your blank is when facing Assyria, when facing Assyria. So again, Isaiah is ministering in the south while Assyria is attacking the northern kingdom. And kind of coming down, but but Israel, the whole nation, like the two kingdoms unified, is very very small, right? So if a gigantic world empire is attacking north, it's it's it would probably feel it's not quite this close, but it would feel similar to like if something was happening in southern Indiana from here. You know, if it's like right across the river, it's just right there. Like it's a different state, but it's right there. So it's geographically really really close. So the southern kingdom knows the northern kingdom is different, but we could almost see it. You know, like on a clear day. So they know the Assyrian Empire is sweeping down, so they're nervous. And Isaiah is trying to tell the southern kingdom, we have a chance to repent. We don't have to fall to the same fate as them. They haven't been faithful. They're getting punished. We don't have to. Let's try to make this right. And that's kind of Isaiah's stuff. So chapters 1 through 39 happened in the shadow of that before the fall of Jerusalem. And then as Assyria comes down to, uh, before the fall of Samaria, sorry. And then as Assyria comes down to Jerusalem, that's kind of what's happening in those... Um, first chapters. 
Uh, let me see if I want to give you more detail. There's more detail we could talk about there, but I don't know that it's really that helpful. Um, I think it. I think it would be helpful for you to know that chapters 36 through 39 of Isaiah kind of talk about um, Hezekiah's reign and them dealing with Assyria in Jerusalem. Um, because Assyria comes down from the north, and then they get to Jerusalem but don't conquer it. Do you remember that story? you remember what happens? It's so good. Assyria, the Assyrian army surrounds Jerusalem, and Hezekiah, who's the king, repents, mourns, prays, and then like most of the Assyrian army dies overnight. And they pack up and go home. It's crazy. Um, so that you can read about that in Isaiah 36 through 39. So that's kind of the end of that big section is when that stuff happens. We'll look at some of those passages. Can you say that one more time? It talks about Hezekiah's reign in Assyria. Uh, in Assyria, like surrounding Jerusalem, but not conquering it. Yeah. And we'll look at some of those passages so you can see them. I think it's helpful to see. It's really interesting what we get to read about in Isaiah too. <laughs> okay, so that's 1 through 39. Obviously, very broad outlining. Um, but that'll be helpful to you. Um, then, starting at chapter 40, is a total shift in tone. Go ahead and flip there now. We'll look at, we may look at chapter 40 more later. But flip to chapter 40 because it'll, I think it'll help you feel something that scholars debate about. So it'd be good for you to know. So at the end of chapter 39 is when, like I said, Hezekiah is king. He kind of repents. Assyria goes home. Then Hezekiah makes a pretty big mistake in chapter 39. Um, which we'll talk about later, so don't worry about that now. I want to talk about 40 right now. But Hezekiah's, Hezekiah's reign doesn't end great in chapter 39, but Assyria is gone, so that threat's kind of over. Um, but this whole time through chapters 1 through 39, Isaiah's been telling them, if we don't actually really repent, then the same fate's going to happen to us. We're going to get conquered, we're going to get destroyed, we're going to get carried off to exile. We survived Assyria, but that doesn't mean we're going to survive the next one. And Isaiah's kind of been hinting this whole time, there's going to be something else that comes after Assyria that's even worse. And I think we're going to get crushed under that steamroller. It's kind of been Isaiah's thing. So he's pointing, he's looking prophetically toward Babylon and saying, if we don't really repent, Babylon's going to come. And that's really what's going to happen. Hezekiah's reign ends with Isaiah saying, Hezekiah, you did some good things, but you blew it. Babylon's coming basically as soon as you're dead. And we're all going to get carried off into captivity. Does that make sense, what I'm saying so far? So that's what's happened. Isaiah's been prophesying. We're going into exile sometime after Hezekiah. At the end of chapter 39, Hezekiah's reign is talked about at the end. Then look at chapter 40. It starts with, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Um, and that's going to go on into a passage that you might find familiar. So the shift here is like, we, Isaiah's just been saying, you survived one threat, but the next threat is coming and they're going to carry you off into exile for a long time. And then this one says, hey, take comfort. You've paid your dues. Your sin is forgiven. Like, wait, wait, wait. That seems like something, if, if you're kind of piecing the history together looking back, that seems like something Isaiah might say to them after exile, doesn't it? Like, hey, take comfort. Your sin's been paid for. Punishment's over. You can return. Does that make sense? So there's more detail to it than that, but I just want you to feel that hard shift, and here's why. A lot of uh, people, a lot of scholars say Isaiah 40 through, what is the last chapter, 66? Is that how many chapters? Mm -hmm. Yeah. As, that Isaiah 40 through 66 is written by a different author and written later 
than Isaiah 1 through 39. Um, because the shift seems to, the, a lot of those later chapters seem to be writing with a post-exilic perspective, like after exile and writing back. Does that make sense? I'm not asking if you agree, I'm just asking if it makes sense, what I'm saying. Okay. So a lot of people um, will call this section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 66, Deutero-Isaiah. You remember what Deutero means in Greek? Second. So a lot of people call this second Isaiah. Like the first Isaiah was 1 through 39. There's a second book that was written and added on later, written by a different author, compiled and kind of pieced together later. I don't, I don't know what I think. I think if you pushed me, I think I would say Isaiah wrote it all initially at the original time. But I'm okay with there being a later edition. Here's why. Um, if you look at, let's look at, um, where is this passage? Isaiah chapter 8. Flip over to Isaiah 8, and we'll look at verse 16. Uh, so Isaiah 8, 16. Sorry, I was looking at something else, and I didn't flip there. Okay, so 8.16, um, it says, Bind up the testimony, seal up the law among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. So a lot of people point to that verse and say, this is Isaiah talking. He's saying a whole lot of stuff. And at least for some of what he said, he's, he's said, I'm going to write some stuff down and seal it up, but don't look at it yet. I'm going to give it to my disciples. So people will say, Isaiah said a bunch of things, maybe even spoke with kind of future perspective of what God would say to the people once exile was over. But he didn't read it or preach it at the time. He wrote it, sealed it up, gave it to his disciples. And so this group of people who were kind of Isaiah's closest followers kept that tradition alive or kept that scroll so that then later after the exile, they were like, hey, wait, Isaiah said that there would be a day when all of this ended. It ended. I wonder what he had to say about that. And they opened it up and it says, comfort, comfort my people. Your hard service is over. Your sin is paid for. And they're like, wow, Isaiah had so much to say. And then there's a lot more hope stuff even in those later chapters about the future Messiah and all that kind of stuff. Again, not asking at this point if you agree, just asking if that makes sense. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm saying? Okay, is anybody lost? Okay. So the scholarly debate will go way, way, way deeper than that. I'm not giving you all the pieces of the puzzle because I don't really know. And honestly, I don't know that it matters that much. But some people will get real worked up about, like, did you know Isaiah didn't write the whole book of Isaiah? Like, well, it's not, that's not exactly what they're saying. I think it's very possible that the scenario I just painted to you is, is the situation, that Isaiah wrote down some stuff, sealed it up, and passed it along for future generations to read. That kind of thing makes a ton of sense for a prophet to do, um, for any teacher to do. I could see that happening. I could also see Isaiah as a prophet just writing in his time and sharing with everybody. Someday, this exile is going to be over, because that's what Isaiah prophesied too. You're going to go into exile, but it won't be forever. I could totally see him just prophesying all of this stuff at one shot in the 700s BC, and people not understanding it until after the fact. Does that make sense? So I think sometimes modern scholars look at texts like this and see, see, there's a shift in, in chapter 40. Everything's different. New author wasn't written at the same time. None of this is believable. Like, I think that's a drastic step to take from the fact that Isaiah is speaking comfort to people because he's a prophet to them. He also speaks comfort to them in chapters 1 through 39 at different points. So I don't think it's as hard of a shift as scholars make it out to be, but I think you should be aware 
that some people really camp out on that hard shift and make it a like a it's one of those big like gotcha questions some people will pose like you know Isaiah didn't write at all I'm like well let, let's actually look at the shift have you read Isaiah 40 it doesn't feel as different as you think you know what I mean so I just think it's helpful for you to be armed with that the discussion at least what questions do you guys have about that none okay okay yeah well I'm <clears throat> do you think that it may not be as hard as a shift either where like it is a big shift him saying like one through 39 really has a lot of like judgment yeah. language and then 40 comes around and it's all like no more mm-hmm. you guys are good mm-hmm. uh, do you think it may not be as hard of a shift because he brings up the servant like in just a couple chapters later and he like knows like about the character of the servant and why they're like judgment has been paid sort of or like their the price has been paid because of the servant and that's why he's shifting into this language do you think that has anything to do with it or no it might so there's a section later in isaiah where he spends a lot of time talking about this servant of god who's going to come help deliver them into a new season basically so yeah he may just be doing a new set of prophecies and knowing like there's going to be a way that there's a solution to all of this, and so we're just shifting tone. I think that's possible. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, because, I mean, even in 40, it says, what is it, verse 8 or something, it says, like, make a way, yeah. like the Lord is on his way, sort of. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just sort of referencing this, like, future Messiah on his way. Yeah. It's all, I, I, it's sort of, to me, when I read it, it feels like, which may not be mm-hmm. true, it feels like he's saying, no, like, your debt has been paid because... Like, he's on his way. We know, mm-hmm. I know what he's coming to do. Yeah, somebody's going to fix it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that kind of thing is true. And again, kind of like I said earlier, too, I think this is a big deal. There's also lots of comforting stuff and hopeful stuff in Isaiah 1 through 39. Yeah. And a lot of judgment stuff in Isaiah 40 to 66. So that one verse is a hard shift, and there's some other linguistic things I think scholars would really nitpick. But yeah, I think it's mostly like Isaiah's talking about a different kind of thing. It's like the major threat... Even though he knows there's another threat coming in Babylon, the major threat's been averted. Assyria left. So now it's like, okay, let's shift into it. These people have new needs now. Like it's going to be 120 years before Babylon comes. So Isaiah has other things to talk about besides continuing to warn them about the Assyrians who are no longer there. So I think it makes sense that he's just going to talk about different stuff in a different way. And yet the fact that he shifts more into all of its future more future-oriented in those later chapters in the, in a specific kind of sense. There's a servant coming, there's deliverance coming. He even, um, in these in some of these sections, I don't, it may be earlier. No, it's later in the, it's in that 40 to 66 section that he talks about Persia. So that's, an, that's another one of those reasons that people would be like, how can you talk about Persia when Persia hasn't happened yet? This must be written later. But I think it's just as possible that Isaiah can write about there's going to be another empire coming like, I, you know, I could say that now, that 200 years from now there will be another world power. Of course there will. You know, I don't, it wouldn't be that hard. So, I don't know. That's what I think, generally. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay. Hope that's helpful to you in some way. Um, okay. Your blank for that section, for 40 through 55, is while enduring exile. While enduring exile. I'm going to call it that kind of for that, that whole section there. I think Isaiah writes those words for the people, not even so much for that time, because Assyria has just left, 
I think he's more thinking, because he said, yeah, Syria has left. There's going to be an exile time that's going to be hard. So let me write down for you the words of comfort you're going to need then. I think that's kind of the, the main drive and the main message Isaiah has in chapters 40 through 55. Does that make sense? So it is more hopeful, but I think he's giving that to them, saying you're going to need hope now and certainly in the future. Here's hope for you. Hold on to it. Um, you're, and within that, within 40 through 55, chapters 49 to 55 are about God's servant. Um, you can just write that down. It'll make more sense later. But um, sometimes people call that the servant songs in Isaiah. Um, we mentioned that briefly. We'll look at some of them in the future. One of them that you're probably most familiar with is Isaiah 53, where it talks about um, he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our sins, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, by his wounds we are healed, that passage. It talks about God's servant being those things. So there's a lot of different, God will have a servant, God's raising up a servant, God has a servant who's going to do this stuff. And that's all 49 through 55. Um, Isaiah 56 through 66, your blank is returning and longing for home. Returning and longing for home. So there's like some repentance, um, prayer, poetry kind of stuff in that section. Um, there's some more suffering or servant stuff, not suffering. There's some more servant stuff like God is going to raise up a servant who's going to bring us into a new season. There's a lot of like in the future someday all of this stuff will go away and everything's going to be made new. Some of that stuff is in those later chapters. Um, which, again, I don't think requires it to be written later. I think it requires a prophetic voice to be able to say, regardless of how you're feeling now, the truth is that someday eternally God is going to bring about something new. And I don't think that has to be written in some future sense because just like maybe it is weird that Isaiah is living in a certain time writing about future hope, but put him in that time. Like in five, we've talked about the the um, return from exile period, right? Like when Nehemiah is rebuilding the city and Ezra is rebuilding the temple and that kind of stuff, and even leading up to Jesus's day, were they all just filled with hope and everything was great then, or was it still kind of miserable? Remember, it's still kind of miserable, wasn't it? It's like, yeah, I'm glad we're home, but this city sucks. Like that's kind of the reality they're living in, and so say this stuff is written later. Well, it's not like they're super hopeful then. If he writes it later, they're going to be like, man, nothing is as good as it used to be. That would be the tone. So I think Isaiah is writing as a prophet, giving future hope for people that he knows are going to need it for generations to come. I think that makes sense. Um, okay, let's just go through some other stuff. Themes of theological significance, bottom line stuff, and then we'll look at um, some different passages that would be good for you to know from Isaiah. Doing all right so far? Still tracking? Good? Okay. Um, so first, God alone is God, is your blank. God alone is God over against idols. So Isaiah will talk a lot about, if you guys didn't worship idols, we wouldn't be in this mess. That's kind of the big, the big problem. Jeremiah's going to deal with that quite a bit too. So God alone is God, and Isaiah has a lot to say about that. Um, next, disobedience will result in consequences. Disobedience will result in consequences, but repentance will result in forgiveness. So Isaiah is, I think the prophets get this, um, we tend to think of them in these two extreme categories. Both, I think, are true. It's just not that extreme. Either the prophets are all doom and gloom and just have terrible, mean things to say, and they're just mad all the time. Sometimes. Or we just look at the prophets, and we've talked about this a whole lot, and like all the prophets just predict Jesus to the T, and that's what they were doing. They were just sitting down making predictions about a future person. Well, not that, not quite that simple, right? They were more saying, 
God is going to deliver us. Here's what it's going to be like. And once we have Jesus, we're able to look back and say, wow, this one person lived out all those detailed things. But at the time, they weren't hearing it quite that way. Here's why I say all of that. We think either doom and gloom or this specific, we're predicting a person. Some of those things both happen, but it's much more blended than that. And I think what Isaiah gives us is a pretty good picture of like, God is going to bring judgment. But if you repent, it's not that bad. Like the prophets hold those things together really, really well. There's a lot of judgment, a lot of doom and gloom, and a whole lot of hope that's general and specific. So it's, it's all together. The prophets are never just, God hates you. They actually never really say that. They just say, God is like disappointed in you and hurt by you. But if you turn back, he's ready to take you back. So the prophets always blend those things together, I think much more than we kind of perceive. Um, the third one, a Messiah is coming. A Messiah is coming. There's a lot of those overtones in Isaiah. Um, Isaiah is the, is the book probably that gets the most specific about that. Most of the other prophets are much more like the nation will be restored kind of language. Isaiah does that and also says God's going to raise up a servant who kind of leads that change. So Isaiah is the one that gets the most person specific. But even then, it's, it's more like someday we'll finally have a good king. That's kind of the thrust of Isaiah. I think what he's probably envisioning when he writes that stuff, when God gives him those images, he's probably picturing, like, these kings are awful. Someday we're going to have a good one who actually leads us. That's kind of the picture. Um, so Messiah's coming, and in Isaiah, in all of Scripture, but Isaiah really emphasized he's coming for all nations. Again, I think that's one of those things um, that we can miss sometimes in the Old Testament is we make this such a harsh divide between the Old and New Testaments. Where it's like in the Old Testament, it was all about Jewish people and God hating them. And in the New Testament, God loves everybody and now everybody's welcome. It's like, no, from Genesis 12 through the rest of the Old Testament, God has said, I love you, I want you, I'll receive your repentance, and I want all nations. The whole point of calling any of you is so that all of you can be blessed, right? That's Genesis 12. Abraham, I want you to receive my blessing so all nations can be blessed. That's always been the goal. And it doesn't just change on a dime between Malachi and Matthew. It's the whole Old Testament. So there's lots of passages in Isaiah where he'll talk about, hey, all nations are supposed to be coming. You're keeping nations out. People, There's foreigners who think that they don't have a part in this. They do have a part in this. Why won't you let them in? That's a lot of the thrust of Isaiah, which I think is not typically what we think of when we think Old Testament, right? But it's there. God's heart has always been that. It's more been about his people not understanding or not willing to get over themselves enough to be all nations inclusive and then finally jesus just kind of kicks that door down and the holy spirit miraculously empowers it through peter and paul's ministries but that's always been god's heart and we see it in isaiah quite a bit is that making sense all this so far okay all right let's just look at some passages then and get a feel for isaiah um and again prophets are hard especially the major prophets because they weave in and out of like there will be a couple narratives where a story is moving and then all of a sudden it's three chapters of prophecies and you don't know what they're talking about or how long that lasts and then there's another narrative and they're not always in order so if you can understand i think the overall historical flow a couple of those big section pieces then find yourself in a chapter in isaiah plot it kind of on an outline like when in history is this happening then just try to make sense of what he's saying and what he's talking about does that make sense okay so isaiah 1 18 through 20, I think this is just a good passage to know. It's a fairly well-known one. Um, it's good to know in Isaiah. Here's what it says. 
uh, Isaiah is speaking to the people, and he says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. So this is what God is saying through Isaiah. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are as red as crimson, they shall be like wool. If you're willing and obedient, you will eat the best from the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I do want to say, given the time of year that it is, it's always been interesting to me that the colors used to describe sin are scarlet and crimson. I just think that's interesting as a Michigan fan. But um, <laughs> this passage, though, is pretty well known. Is this, is this familiar to you? Have you heard it before? Though your sins are like scarlet, they'll be white as snow. So a couple things I want you to see about this passage. For one, again, the gracious offer of God, right? Like God is saying, yes, you're sinful. Yes, I'll judge you for it. If you turn back to me, I could fix it. Like, let's just get together here. Let's just reason together and talk about it. But then he's saying, like, if you're willing to be, it'll be great. But if you don't, I'll punish you. So, like, this is a hopeful verse. It's a hopeful offer. offer but there's judgment laced in it. God is always doing both those things. I will be just. I will be forgiving. Just come to me and let's have a conversation. That's what he's saying. Just inviting them. Um, so, again, not just a doom and gloom prophet. I think Isaiah is being realistic. Like, I know you people aren't going to do it. But this is available to you. So, essentially, whose fault is it then? Is God being wrathful and mean? Or are you being selfish and prideful and sinful? The fault is on the people, right? Um, but that's Isaiah 1. Now flip over to Isaiah 5. And of course, there's lots of good stuff in Isaiah 2 through 4. Um, but just want to highlight some key passages for you that are good to know. So Isaiah chapter 5. Um, this is what it says. This, this one is significant. Uh, for one, because this imagery will kind of play throughout the rest of Isaiah, but also a lot in the Gospels. You see this in some of Jesus' parables and stuff. Uh, so chapter 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Does that sound like something Jesus would say, that kind of thing? Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall, and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So this is God saying to Israel, you're like a vineyard that I planted. You only exist because I planted you, and I took care of you. I gave you every reason to succeed. You're not producing the fruit I looked for, which is what? We just talked about a second ago. Well, they, he wants repentance, ultimately so that Genesis 12. I want, I want you to experience and live in my blessing so all nations can experience and live in my blessing. Be producing fruit here. Be growing. Be beautiful. That's what I made you for. You're not doing that. You're being self-absorbed. You're worshiping idols. You're living outside my will, so I'm not going to bless you, and other nations aren't going to know who I am. So why are we going to keep doing this? I'm just going to let you be destroyed and figure out a new way to get fruit. Like, that's kind of God's um, thing. But that imagery, you know, and he's saying, like, I built this vineyard, there's a wall around it, there's a hedge around it. What do those images give you? What, what do those things accomplish? A wall and a hedge around a vineyard? Protection. So God's saying, there's an enemy sweeping down. 
I used to protect you. I'm not just going to protect you. If you're not producing fruit, why would I protect you? We need to start over. You need to be burned to the ground and we can start planting again. So that's kind of what Isaiah is giving the people. And that's pretty explosive. And he's giving this parable. You wonder if they're like, what does he mean? And then at the end, he's like, the vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel. They're like, what? (laughs) That's us. Jesus does the almost identical thing. You remember that parable? Jesus does this. There's a vineyard that's not producing fruit. And then he's like, you guys are the vineyard. You know, that's like, and then they get really mad at him when we kill him. So Jesus does the same thing Isaiah does. Same things happen to Jesus as happens to Isaiah. Let me sit there not able to kill Isaiah yet. He's got a ways to go. Um, but this is a, a big, big, big thing. Um, this is another uh, part of what's important about this is um, he talks about this vineyard he's going to destroy, that there's like, there's going to be no plants left, no fruit left. But on through these chapters, we'll look at one in chapter 7 and 11, especially 11. Um, but there's some language about like, there's just a stump left because I cut you off. But there's going to be something that grows out of this stump. I cut you off, but there's a new seed growing. That's a lot of the kind of hope Isaiah gives. Which again, the, the imagery is, I need to start over with this nation. And even specifically, I need a new king who can lead it. So we need a new tree to grow in this vineyard. Does that make sense? So um, that imagery traces through Isaiah and will help you unlock a lot of the weird stuff. We'll look at a couple of them. Um, Isaiah chapter 6, we um, mentioned this passage earlier, um, but it's really, really good. Um, I, I will not read this one for class because there's other ones that I think are more important to teach the book. This is great for you to read on your own. You should read this sometime when you... Um, Especially if your heart's like feeling weak or unsure about your ministry calling. Spend some time in Isaiah 6 and just let it feed you. Um, so we won't look at that today. Flip over to chapter 7. Chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 10, but let me give you a little bit of context because this is a weird passage. We, we tend to read like one of these verses around this time of year, and it's really exciting. But when you read it in context, it's so confusing. So let me kind of un- unwrap it a little bit for you because it's a little weird. So what's happening at the beginning of chapter 7 is this king Ahaz. It says in chapter 7, 1, Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, was king in Judah. And he's just kind of, um, the text isn't super clear about what's happening, but you can piece it together based on, um, implications in the text and what we know later on. Basically, Ahaz is kind of being a coward. So he's seeing a threat from the north, from other nations. Some other nations are getting together and threatening Judah. And he's nervous. He's not like he's afraid. But God is saying, don't be afraid. I'm not going to let it happen. And then God, God says to him, like, ask for a sign. Go ahead, test me. I'll prove it to you. And he's like, no, no, no. I don't want to put you to the test. He's just, which again is weird when you just read it, like, I don't know what's happening. I think overall in the context and implication, what's happening is Ahaz is afraid. God tells him, I'm not going to let you get hurt this time. Don't be afraid. I'll prove it to you. And he's like, no, 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 I don't, I don't, I'm afraid. That's basically what's happening. So then God gets upset. And like, if you're going to be a coward, if you're not going to trust me, if you're not going to believe what I say to you, then I'm going to figure out a new leader and a new way to accomplish this because I can't trust you, Ahaz. That's kind of what's happening. Does that make sense? So then that's the conversation that happens right before where we're going to pick up or right as we pick up. So verse 10 says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test, which sounds noble, except that God just said, Ask me. No, no, no. So he's being disobedient, essentially. Um, Verse 13, then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. Um, but before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. Uh, the Lord will bring on you and on your people in the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So basically, you think this little threat is bad. I told you it's going to be fine. You don't trust me. I can solve it with a baby if I want to. And it's going to be worse. Assyria is going to come down here later. That's summarizing kind of the tricky language. We use this verse often around this time of year, right? The virgin will be with the child and give birth to a son. When you read it in context, like, what is he talking about? I think when we kind of unravel the riddle a little bit, what he's getting at is God saying, you, King Ahaz, I can't trust you to lead these people. I just gave you my promise. You won't even depend on it. I just gave you my word. You're not even taking me at my word. You're like either a coward or want to figure out your own military alliance to defeat this thing. I just told you I'll take care of it. You don't trust me. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find an impossible circumstance that maybe is totally from outside your line, Ahaz, because I can't trust you to be king. I'm going to find a new king that I can raise up to lead all kinds of new things. It'll be like a virgin gives birth to a son. That's how impossible it'll seem to you. But I can do it. And I'm going to get rid of you and do it another way. Does that make sense? I think that's what, if you kind of weave through the prophetic, poetic language, that's what he's saying. And so this passage becomes a pretty cool early promise of God saying, I will do something that seems impossible to you to get the leader I want who trusts me to do impossible things. Watch me. That's kind of what God's saying here. And he does it through what we know, like literally, a virgin became pregnant and gave birth to Jesus, which is nuts. So that's like the root of this thing. Does that make sense so far? Clicking? Strange passage when you read it in context, but I think it's so pretty cool. Uh, flip over to chapter 9. Another good Christmas passage. Um, so Isaiah chapter 9. He says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. He's been talking about how everything's going to be bad because you're not faithful and I'm going to punish you. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. If you look up Zebulun and Naphtali, where those tribes were supposed to settle, it was right along the Sea of Galilee, like where Jesus started his ministry. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. Present the days of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressors. Who defeated the Midianites? Do you remember when they were a big deal? Gideon, yeah. So this is kind of hearkening back to one of Israel's heroes. You remember when that happened and it was so great? This is going to be even better. Uh, verse 5, every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. Why is that significant? Verse 5. What's he, what's he kind of saying? The stuff that they were supposed to burn from the, when they would go through and capture or conquer people, they would burn everything. Maybe so. Maybe that's part of it. I think there's even more that's even better. Why, why is it significant that they're, that they're going to burn that stuff up? I don't think so. I mean, that's true. They won't need to fight anymore. They won't need it anymore. He's like, get your boots and your army equipment, get your garments that you used to go fight in, and just burn them up. The implication is, the fight's over. This, I'm, I'm going to raise up somebody in Galilee 
to bring, to bring a great light to everybody in darkness. And you won't even need to fight the battle anymore. Just get rid of that stuff. It's over. Isn't that good? Um, verse 6. For to us a child is born. So wait, wait, wait. You said we can burn up all our army stuff because we don't need to fight anybody away. Why? Because there was a baby born? That's not going to fix it. But that's what fixes it. Kind of what you were saying, Haley. He's going to do it a different way. For to us the Son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing it and upholding it with justice and righteousness. Two things that the kings of that day did not do well. They were not just and they were not righteous, but this new king will. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Um, so again, in the context of this specifically, you can just pull this passage and it's beautiful. But in the context of what he's saying, like, you kings are cowards, you kings are unfaithful, you kings don't trust me. I'm going to bring a new baby, a new line who actually lives out the house of David and the courage of David and the faithfulness of David, who's going to put an end to all that. You guys are afraid of armies sweeping from the north? That's nothing compared to what I can accomplish with a baby and the increase of his government. Other language for that could be like the expansion of his empire. There will be no end. Because a baby was born. And what does it say in verse 5? You don't even need your warrior's clothes, though. But wait, you said the increase of his government will not end. The ways governments increase is by conquering, right? Not this one. A baby's born, and he'll be a wonderful counselor and a mighty God and a prince of peace who increases his government in a totally different kind of way. Isn't that good? In the context of these kings who are afraid of military threats and trying to make alliances so they can fend them off, God's like, I'll just do it with a new kid. That's crazy. Um, But a a crazy little glimmer of hope. So imagine if you're the prophet saying this, when Isaiah first says this, they're not going to be like, oh, you mean the Messiah that's going to be born someday in a small town so that we can wait till he grows up and he'll be miraculous. That's not what they would have thought at all. What they would have heard Isaiah saying is, just wait for a new king to be born sometime. And once that baby's born, then your problems can be fixed in this nonsensical way. So when Isaiah says this, they're like, you're crazy, man. Like, they're not going to listen to him. Right? Does that make sense? This is a crazy, nonsensical thing for him to say, basically. But he says it. They don't believe him. And he's so proven right generations later. So I I think unpacking that a little bit helps you see why it's not just like those people were so hard-hearted and wouldn't listen to the prophets. That's true. But also the things he was saying were like really offensive and really kind of nonsensical sometimes. They just wouldn't work. But that's what God had to say and what he would ultimately do. Um, So that's kind of the language of the prophets a little bit. I think Isaiah 9 is really, really good. Making sense? Clicking? Interesting? Helpful? Okay. Uh, Flip over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. It's another big one for messianic kind of perspective. I hinted at this passage earlier, but you'll see it in in verse 1. So chapter 11, verse 1. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots a branch will bear fruit. So the stump of Jesse. Who is Jesse? David's father. So essentially, I, I think this is poetic language to get us at. The, the like tree of Jesse would have been David in the line of kings. That make, does that make sense? But if there's a stump, that means God's saying, I'm going to cut you off as a nation because you've been unfaithful to me. So all that's left is a stump with like Assyria standing over it and Babylon standing over it. 
But out of that stump, so out of the same family, comes a new promising little shoot, which means it's little and it's going to take a while to grow, but it's coming out of that same place that I'm going to level off. So in this is both the, there's consequences for your unfaithfulness, and there's future hope when you turn to me, like all kind of put together. Um, the spirit of the Lord, verse 2, will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and power, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. What book of the Bible does that sound like to you? Revelation. I think of Revelation 19 when it says like there's this warrior king riding on a white horse with a sword in his mouth to slay people. That's Revelation borrows that language here, at least partially from here. Um, and he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips he'll slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. So it goes on with a lot of good stuff after that. Um, but again, this is Isaiah saying, from this family a new king will come who's actually going to do what I say. Now, um, we've talked some about some of the crazy things he would say, why it's easy for them to miss it. But think about prophecies like this uh, in the context of people, uh, the Jewish people not embracing Jesus when he came. Why didn't they? Because they wanted a military ruler, like an actual real king who was going to lead them like they were supposed to be led and fight other nations like they were supposed to fight, Right. And they would hear passages like this and say, from the stump of Jesse, there will be a new king. So we're looking for a king like David was. What was David most known for? Goliath. Well, Goliath, which, which got him praised for being a great warrior. And he expanded the kingdom by military conquest. So if we're going to have a king like David, it's going to be a king like that who does those things. That's what they're looking for. And in some ways, based on this, fair expectation. Right? Like I can see why they would see someone like Jesus not doing that and say, you're not what we're looking for. But if you piece it all together, he was what they're looking for. It's just hard to see it. From looking backwards, we can see it. From hearing it then and trying to apply it into your situation, it doesn't click. So I get why they missed it. Um, you just still wish that they could have humbled themselves enough to hear a new thing God was doing. You know? Okay. Yes. Uh, so like the language of like cutting off the... Like, yeah. Is that like a denouncement of David and after? Like that it wasn't good, so we're cutting it off? I don't think so. I think it's more that like, because he doesn't, he doesn't say like, I'm getting rid of this whole tree. He says, I'm cutting it off. There's a stump left. Which I, so I think, you know, you always get in trouble if you push poetic images maybe too much for detail. But I think what he's getting at is, I built something good here. And you guys, as you're growing up from this, root system have been totally unfaithful and unrighteous. So I'm cutting you off now. You don't get to keep making a tree. But within that same tree, I'm going to grow a new one. I think that's what he's going to Yeah, so it's like, I did a good thing here with David. You guys blew it, so you're done. And let's start over. Does that make sense? Yeah, good question. Okay. Some more passages? Um, Isaiah 36 to 39 I just want you to see we won't really read it all we've taught about this in Kings uh, but chapters 36 to 39 is when um, Hezekiah and Sennacherib kind of have their showdown in Jerusalem Sennacherib surrounds the city Hezekiah humbles himself a little bit 
and then Sennacherib leaves um, in the middle of chapter 37. Chapter 38, Hezekiah gets sick, God saves him, and then chapter 39, let's do read this because this is interesting. I hinted at this earlier, but it's really interesting. Um, <clears throat> so chapter 39, and this will help you see like the beginning of the end of Judah. At that time, Merodach Baladan, son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent Hezekiah letters and a gift because he had heard of his illness and recovery. So at this time, Babylon's not like, Assyria is still the world power. Babylon's not the world power yet. It's just another nation, okay? Because this is like 700 BC or so, 701. Hezekiah received the envoys gladly and showed them what was in his storehouses, the silver, the gold, the spices, the fine oil, his entire armory and everything found among his treasures. There was nothing in his palace or in all his kingdom that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and asked, What did those men say and where did they come from? From a distant land, Hezekiah replied, They came to me from Babylon. You can almost hear that, like, look at these people who came from so far away to see how amazing I am. You know, it seems like he's a little proud of himself. The prophet asked, What did they see in your palace? They saw everything in my palace, Hezekiah said. There's nothing among my treasures I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord Almighty. The time will surely come when everything in your palace and all that your fathers have stored up until this day will be carried off to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your descendants, your own flesh and blood, who will be born to you, will be taken away, and they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. And that's the last we hear in Isaiah, at least, about Hezekiah. That's not so great, right? So we've got this king who is humble enough to repent and kind of lead some revival in Jerusalem so that the Assyrians go away. And then he gets sick and almost dies and God heals him. It's incredible. Then the very next thing he does is show off all of his wealth and his splendor and his accomplishments and his army to this foreign land to impress them. And God's like, I'm going to be done with you pretty quick. Like, it's just that that turn is so sad. And then even when it's like your family, like, you're going to be okay, but as soon as you're dead, basically your descendants are going to suffer this and have to deal with this and get mutilated in Babylon. And Hezekiah's like, all right, well, I guess I'll be okay. Like, that's so, so sad to end that way. Yeah, Jackson. You answered my question. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just had to wait a few more seconds. <laughs> okay, <laughs> cool. Um, so that's how Hezekiah ends. Right after that is then when we get to chapter 40 when things shift and Isaiah starts speaking more comfort for the future. But you can see where things end here with the kind of Assyrian saga. It's like Assyria went away, but now the threat of Babylon is, is not just possible or imposing, but Isaiah said it's going to happen. Then he shifts into the kind of the future comfort language stuff. Does that make sense? Okay. I think it's helpful, by the way, especially in these major prophets, even to kind of flip through sometimes and scan through and see where there's narrative sections versus poetic. You know how to tell that difference in your Bible? The poetic stuff, it looks like Psalms, where the, it's like center aligned and all that stuff. You know what I mean? But if you look at the narrative, sometimes it's like you'll explain something that happens, and then they'll break into the prophetic stuff, and you can make more sense of what he's talking about or why if you read the narrative that leads up to it. But you just kind of have to scan through to find those things, especially in the major prophets. Does that make sense? Okay. Um, we talked a little bit about Isaiah 40. Um, so I won't look at... Chapter 41 through 8 is really, really, really good. Um, it's out in, in verse 3, it says, A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Where have you heard that verse before? John the Baptist, yeah, it's another Christmas kind of verse. 
Um, so that's Isaiah 40. Look at Isaiah 40, verse 28. This is just another really good passage you should know. Know where to find it. Know it's in Isaiah. Highlight it if you don't have it highlighted yet. Um, and look up the old Chris Tomlin song because it's good. Um, verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary. All his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, even young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This is a good passage to be able to know where to get to. It's a good one. Um, Isaiah 42. And I'm just kind of pointing out important ones, key ones here. Um, You can see him start to use some of that servant language. You see that in chapter 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. What is that phrase, chosen one? What do you think that, like in Hebrew or Greek, how would we translate that word? Yeah, it's the Messiah phrase. So he's saying, I have a servant, a Masiach, a Messiah. But that's just the language in Hebrew. So we, now having Jesus, say there is a Messiah, like with a capital M, that we're looking for, right, when we read the New Testament. When he's saying this, it's just another word for like God saying like, Somebody's going to be my servant. They're going to be the one that I choose to work through. So it's not a capital M yet. It's like a lowercase m. But the idea is building with passages like this. Does that make sense to you? Um, I will put my spirit on him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth and his law. The islands will put their hope. I mean, it keeps going for a while. Where have you heard that a bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out before? Is that familiar to you? Jesus says that about John the Baptist. This is interesting. So again, take the, the Messiah concept we were just talking about. Here we see all kinds of overtones of the things Jesus did, if we're looking for capital M Messiah. But specifically, Jesus applies it to John the Baptist. Was John the Baptist the Messiah? No. Was he messianic with a lowercase m? Yes. Yes. So that's why we talk so much about like, you see these messianic prophecies, don't jump too much to every Jew reading this would have known that if somebody walks along and doesn't break a reed, that's the Messiah. They weren't thinking that way. They were thinking someday God's going to fix this stuff. And we're looking for the kind of situation, the kind of world where God wins. And this is the kind of stuff they see. So when Jesus applies it to John, they're like, oh wait, that's one of those passages. Maybe the world is shifting is what he's getting at. They weren't looking for capital M yet. Does that make sense? And like I've said all along, the reason I emphasize that so much is because I think it helps you make sense of the Old Testament. You can read this and know what people were understanding when they read it. Instead of just reading Jesus back into it too quickly, then I think you miss a lot of what Isaiah meant. Um, Okay, Isaiah 53. We've said that that whole section, like from 42 on, a lot of that is about different servant kinds of passages. Um, wait, 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 I skipped 44. Sorry, I want you to see 44, because that's important. Um, where did it start? 44, 24. Um, where do I want to start? Okay. Um, I won't start back at verse 24, but it's really, really good. I'll start at, God is just basically talking about himself, like, hey, I'm your God, I'm pretty powerful, listen to what I say. That's what verses 24 on say. 
Um, so look at verse 27. He's, God's talking about himself. I'm the one who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Like, I have the power to, you know, dry up the ocean. And who says of Cyrus, who's Cyrus? You know? He was the king of Persia, yeah. So it hasn't happened yet at the time of this writing or at the time of Isaiah. But who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will save Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. That's exactly what happens, right? Isn't it interesting, though, that the language is, Cyrus is my shepherd. Who else is called a shepherd in Scripture? Like, what kinds of people? Jesus. God is a shepherd. David is a shepherd. Cyrus is a shepherd? And then, um, chapter 45, this is what the Lord says to his anointed, there's that word again, chosen one, Messiah, Christ, to Cyrus. So Cyrus is... Messiah, whose right hand I take hold of and subdue nations before him and strip kings of their armor to open doors before him so the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places so that you may know I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summoned you by name. He's going to keep going. Who is he talking about breaking down gates for and paving the way for? Who is he talking about? Cyrus. It's so interesting, isn't it? That God is saying, I'm going to f- take this foreign king, who by most accounts is like not a good dude, right? Like he's a, the emperor of Persia. Not good. But God's saying, I've chosen him to work through him to accomplish his purposes, that, to accomplish purposes that I want to. And ultimately saying, so that he would know I'm God. So you wonder if Cyrus really did come to know him. Because Cyrus does say, go rebuild Jerusalem, you know, go rebuild the city. He allows the Jews to do good things. I wonder if he really came to know and fear God. That'd be pretty cool. I don't know. But that's at least what God says he would hope for. But I think it's, I highlight this for one just because it's an interesting, weird passage. But for another, to continue understanding this Messiah idea. That here in Isaiah, it's saying, Cyrus is a Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's a Messiah. Why? Because God chose him to accomplish something through him. And that's messianic in some sense. The purposes of God were advanced through Cyrus doing it. The biggest point in this passage, I think, that we need always to remember is that whether it's Sennacherib, king of Assyria, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, Cyrus, king of Persia, Herod, king of Judea, whoever it is, who's in control of all of it? God. They're all just puppets, basically. Now, we're not doing a Calvinism debate thing, like how in, how in charge and sovereign is God? He is sovereign. What does that mean in details? I don't know. Like that's where we can all kind of land and agree, right? But in big picture at least, those guys, name your president, name your ruler, name your premier, name your prime minister, whatever. They're just puppets ultimately in the hands of a sovereign God who's in control of all history. Does that mean he controls all of their movements all the time? No, I don't think so. But does that mean he could choose to operate his will through any given powerful person at any time? Yeah, he could. Could God say of any world ruler, that is a Messiah for me in some sense. I have chosen to accomplish my global purposes through what they do. That's what this passage says. So we can get in the details and get weird again, the sovereignty thing. I, I don't think that's the point. I think the point of this is to say, you're afraid of all of these big rulers You're nervous about how world economies are going to come and go. You're nervous about military situations. And God says, if I want to, even Cyrus is just my puppet to accomplish my things. 
that should just bring us to worship of God. I think that wondering about the details, I think God would say, don't worry about that. I got it. The point is I got it. Stop worrying. That's the point. Don't worry about that stuff. I'm in charge. That's God's um, word through this situation. Does that make sense? I think it's pretty cool. Um, Isaiah 53 is a passage that would probably be familiar. We hinted this one earlier. Um, Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows. We considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. And then verse 5, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we were healed. And he keeps going. It's a great passage. You should know it. It's one maybe worth memorizing if you want to lock it away somewhere. Um, That's Isaiah 53. Uh, flip over to Isaiah 55. Um, starting in verse 1. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, and you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread, and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. So that's good and just beautiful stuff, but let me, like... Make sure you get the meaning because it's pretty cool. And Revelation picks up on some of this imagery too. Um, he's saying, okay, if you're thirsty and you're poor and you don't have any money, come, you can come get what you need. But then he says in the middle of verse 1, come get wine and milk. So he's like, you're poor, but you should just drink some wine and milk. But they would say, no, I'm poor, I need water. Why would, like wine is a luxury and milk is a delicacy. If I'm poor, I don't get that stuff. And I think he's saying, this is how abundant it's going to be someday. Like, yes, we're facing terror. You're facing exile. Someday, God is going to so redeem things that even those of you who are poor don't just get your needs met. You get the luxuries at no cost. That's how abundant God's generosity will be. And then verse 2, why spend money on what's not bread and your labor on what is not satisfied? That, that question is kind of the, them saying, with what little I have, why would I buy milk and wine? I need bread and water so that I can be satisfied and live another day. But he's saying, no, 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 listen. This is good for your soul, and there's plenty. It's all going to be okay. It's scary right now, long-term, trust me. Come get as much as you want. Isn't that beautiful? So I think we read that passage, and it's beautiful. When I stop and actually think of what it means, this is God talking about abundance for his people, not just needs met. There may be seasons of just needs met, but the point of this passage is someday it will go far and above even that. Um, later in this passage, all, all this stuff ends up is, is really, really good. Um, but later in this passage in verse 8, he says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. This is coming off of that whole, I will have crazy abundance for you, because I have better thoughts than you and better ways than you. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I send it. Um, So that's what God's saying, like, if I speak something, if I say something, it will happen. It will be accomplished. You can count on it. You can trust it. What I say will not fail. Um, From this verse, it's not the only place, and it's not the only thing this verse means, but I think it's important. Um, This verse is a key verse. in this doctrine. You guys know that word? Infallibility? The infallibility of Scripture. So there's a few different words we'd use to describe Scripture. Inerrancy, infallibility, inspired. Have those familiar to you? 
infallibility means it will not fail. It is unfailable, basically, is what that, that word means. So this is a key verse in understanding that doctrine. God says, if I say something, I mean it, it will happen, you can count on it. Just like rain comes and it makes the earth wet, my word comes and does what it's supposed to do. You can trust it. It will not fail. That's what um, this means. Uh, let's see. Isaiah 56, 1 through 8. I talked about this earlier, um, but this is... Let me read it. I think it's important for you to hear it. This is not a passage you would typically hear or be familiar with, probably. It's not like a popular passage, but it's really important in understanding Isaiah's, God's heart through Isaiah for all nations and all people. It says, this is what the Lord says, Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand and my righteousness will soon be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this, the man who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it, and keeps his hand from doing any evil. Let no foreigner who has bound himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely exclude me from his people. And let not any eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. It's a weird thing for us to think about a eunuch and what that means, but you guys know what that means. Yes. Look at the imagery he gives here. It's beautiful. So think way back to, to like Exodus kind of stuff. God says that eunuchs don't have the same like service roles in the temple. He says the same for foreigners don't have the same access to the tabernacle temple man, tabernacle. But here he says to the eunuchs who are faithful to me, you and, and you're really with me, then you can come within the temple and I'll give you a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. That would have been one of the, the worst things for being a eunuch because you couldn't have sons and daughters to carry on your name. And God says, if you're with me, he doesn't say, I'll miraculously give you children. But he does say, you'll have a name. I'll remember you. Because how else would we, would we be remembered if we don't have children? Would have been their thought. And God says, I'll remember you forever. And it'll be better than that. Isn't that a good promise? And even, again, this is weird stuff, but the beauty of the, of the poetic imagery a eunuch saying, like, I'm only a dry tree. But then later he says, I will give them an everlasting name that will not be cut off. Weird imagery, powerful imagery. Something has been cut off from them, physically and in their line. But God says, you will not be cut off from my mind, from my heart. What a better gift that is. That's beautiful imagery God's giving to people who are otherwise outcasts. And this is an Old Testament passage, not a New Testament one. That's why I'm highlighting it. This has been God's heart. It has been God's heart. It continues to be through Jesus. Verse 6. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to serve him, to love the name of the Lord and to worship him, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it, and who hold fast to my covenant. By the way, isn't it interesting how many times he said in this passage, Sabbath specifically, follow me, obey my covenant, and the Sabbath. Like, that's really important. It's a big deal. Um, so just don't lose that. Um, verse 7. These I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. Where have you heard that? Jesus said that, right? When he was thrown over tables. So what passage do you think he might have had in mind? It wasn't just, you guys are making money and that's bad, although that was bad. It was, you're excluding these people that I've said all along should be part of it. Get your hearts right. Get out of here. This is what he's thinking of. The Sovereign Lord declares, He who gathers all the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. 
You remember when Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd, the sheep know my voice. And I have other sheep who are not of the sheep pen. Go get them. This is here. I will gather still others besides those already gathered. This has been Isaiah's heart before it was Jesus' heart. Isn't that cool? So I think this passage, a little passage, not very like well-known. So many beautiful little Jesus hints in here um, in Isaiah 56. It's pretty cool. Um, Isaiah 61, if you flip over there. This is the passage that Jesus reads from when he stands up to speak in his home synagogue in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. He reads, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord, for the display of his splendor. So that I don't think Jesus gets to that verse in Luke 4. But this verse is the conclusion of this passage. Like it would have been in their minds. They would have done the same thing we all do when preachers read passages and your mind drifts a couple verses. You know what I mean? They would have done that kind of thing. How many times have we talked about a tree being sawn off and the need for a new growth to come? In Isaiah, Lots. So imagine when Jesus reads this, everything he says already is big enough and explosive enough. And if you follow it to its conclusion, God is going to do this new thing that results in like a forest of big oak trees that God has now caused to grow. What a crazy completion of the thought from you're going to be cut off. This vineyard is going to be destroyed. We've got to start over. There's going to be a shoot that comes up from the stump of Jesse to rebuild what was fallen. And now all of you are going to be planted oaks. That's good. Isn't that cool? And that's like the, that, that kind of completes so much of Isaiah's imagery that Jesus brings to bear. I think when he read Isaiah 61, they would have, their minds, I think, would have at least been able to connect some of those dots. Clearly they didn't get all the way there, but they're, they're getting there. That's where Jesus is trying to lead them. I think it's pretty rich stuff in Isaiah 61. Um, okay, Isaiah 65. Yes, great. So, um, when Jesus reads this in Luke 4, he's like, and now, he basically says this is fulfilled. Yeah. So, and we're reading a lot of Isaiah, and there's a lot of prophetic, Mm -hmm. messianic things. Like, can you just talk about what that means when a prophecy is fulfilled? Because we've talked about that and how he comes to fulfill all, all those things, but... What does that mean or look like or um, like when something comes to completion or fulfillment from a prophecy? Like does that just mean like it doesn't matter anymore or it's now it's gonna rain forever like that? Or like I don't know, I just can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I I think it probably has a range of meaning depending on what it is sometimes it's probably like a specific event and now it happened like what I said would happen happened like um, an example might be you know sometimes a prophet might say um, so like we read the thing with Hezekiah and Isaiah says some of your sons are going to be taken off to Babylon you're going to be and they're going to be made eunuchs after you die well that happened later on even in this book, and, and Jeremiah will read about it, and then Second Kings will read about it, that happens. So there's some of those things where, like, he predicted something, it happened. Like, 
that's fulfilled. There's some stuff like this where it's like it's more proclaiming a, a state of being in the world. You know, it's not because it's not saying there will be a like a lame person sitting on the temple steps who will be healed. That's not what it says. But it says the bro the brokenhearted will be bound up. Well, that's big. So I think when Jesus says that is fulfilled, I think he's saying the beginning of the time that Isaiah was looking for, like the time when this could be true, is happening. It is now upon us. Does that make sense? It's less of a specific event and more of like a state of being and believing has now kicked off. I think that's what Jesus is saying because of the nature of what was prophesied. Does that make sense? Like the kingdom of God is here. Yes. Yeah. Which doesn't mean all of it in its fullness now at this moment is done. It means this way of being and thinking and existing is now possible. We've entered it. Now let's live in it. Yeah. Good question. Um, Anything else on that? Okay. Isaiah 65. In verse 17. And he says, Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. Um, so notice that when he says the former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, I usually think all the terrible things that we hate are finally going to be gone. And I think to some extent that's true. And people would have heard some of that, like the Assyrian stuff, the war stuff, the poverty stuff. We'll forget it. But I think they also would have been like, no, we, what we want is to restore the former things. So like, we want to forget the pain, but the goal is to restore our former glory. That would have been the goal. How rich and powerful and wonderful things were when Solomon was king. That's what we want. So when you say that stuff won't be remembered anymore, what do you mean? You know, like, I don't think that's 100% a win for them. Does that make sense, that mindset? So then he says in verse 18, But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be the light and its people a joy. So he's saying, what used to be is not, I'm not re- restoring former glory, but you will have your city. You'll have your place. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. He who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere youth. He who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the works of their hands. They will not toil in vain or bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together and the lion will eat straw like the ox but dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. This is one of those harbors I think of like, when exactly is he talking about? Because he said, new heavens, new earth. That makes me think future. But then they're like, but I'm going to create Jerusalem. So I can see why a Jewish reader's mind will get confused. Like those things went together for them. The restoration of Jerusalem, the coming of the eternal kingdom, that was one and the same. So again, the confusion of Jesus saying, I'm here to be the new king. This is fulfilled in your presence. They're like, oh, so the end of time. Or it's like in Matthew 24 when they say, look how amazing the temple is. And Jesus says, I'm going to destroy the temple. 
And immediately that to them is, so you mean the end of time? Because when this is over, everything is over. Does that mean those things are together for the Jewish mind? Either we have our city fully restored or we don't. And if we don't, that means we're in the next age. So when Jesus says the temple is going to be destroyed, they're like, oh, so you mean the end of time? And he's like, no. And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like that, that doesn't click. And it's because of passages like this. There's a new heaven and a new earth. And Jerusalem you'll forget. But I'll rebuild Jerusalem. And they're like, what are you talking about? You know, so then I think it becomes when Jerusalem becomes powerful again, that's when we'll know that God is finally on his throne. That becomes the expectation because those things get blended together. Does that make sense? But I think what he's saying is not this city, physically Jerusalem, will become powerful again. And that's when you'll know that I love you again. And then we'll begin all of these good things I've talked about. He's saying, no, 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 forget that. There's a new way of existing in heaven and earth. And I'll give you Jerusalem, not because it's specifically physically Jerusalem, but because, like, you'll have a home, you'll have a place. And let's just call it Jerusalem. I think that's kind of what he's doing here. Does that make sense? So I think this is a long-term future thing, saying, yes, I will restore the best of what you remember. But it'll be so far different than what you remember that you won't even, like, it won't even matter. Does that make sense? It's confusing putting the prophetic stuff on a timeline a little bit, but I, I, that's my best shot at it. To say it's too easy to try to blend and make it specific. And I think it's more like everything's going to be great. What will it be like? It'll be like if Jerusalem was everything good it could be. So you mean it's going to be in Jerusalem like over in Israel right now, like in the Middle East? Like, no, no, no. New heaven and new earth. It's new. It's different. But I'm giving you a reference point. Does that make sense? I think that's what he's doing. Question? Is he kind of saying, like, like, the kingdom of God is here and is coming? So, like, right now, or, like, when this happens, like, they can experience some of that, but, like, fully not till he returns? I think so. I think so, because so much of what Isaiah critiques the kings about is you're not living with justice, there's people wailing in your streets because they're poor and you're keeping them poor, Mm -hmm. Um, people don't have enough to eat. A lot of that stuff is what he's talking about. So, and he's telling them to fix it. So you can fix some of that stuff. But then he's also saying, someday I'm just going to remake all of this. And none of that stuff will exist. So I think he would say, do your best to live toward that. And someday I'm just going to bring it about. So yeah, it's kind of both together. Which is so much what Jesus says too. Blessed are the poor in spirit. There's the kingdom of God. Is that true? Yes and no? Try. And I'll make it that way later. Yeah. That's good. What else? Okay, is this helpful? Other questions about Isaiah or things that are like, I was hoping we would talk about this or I could make some sense of this that we didn't get to. Isaiah's a big one. Okay. All right. Let's um, pause here. Okay.